So welcome, everybody. It's great to see you all today. Great to hear everybody today. I uh, am Brian Malpey. So hello and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Again, I'm Brian Malpey. I'm the Discipline Hearing Review Officer for Hanover County Public Schools and the host of this episode. Today's conversation is a part of a special series in connection with the theme of our upcoming Merck Conference, The Promise of Public Education, Connecting Research, Policy, and Practice in a New Era. What do we mean by the promise of public education in a new era? Public schools have been designed to meet a range of ambitious goals critical to the health and stability of our country. They promise opportunities for social mobility, develop skills that lead to fulfilling vocation and economic livelihood, and to instill dispositions and critical thinking skills essential for democratic citizenship. Although elements of these foundational principles may endure, recent events have shed light on how this promise has, in many cases, been unfulfilled, particularly for, our special, for specific student populations. Over the past year and a half, we've seen the COVID-19 pandemic disrupt nearly every aspect of public schools, forcing educators and students to rapidly adapt to new and uncertain environments. At the same time, International social movements promoting racial justice have called upon school systems to re-examine policies and practices in pursuit of greater equity for their students and the community. Whatever the future may bring, public education finds itself at the inflection point where we can reimagine its purposes and possibilities. For each episode in this series, we'll explore a fundamental element of public education, discuss how it's been impacted by the events of the past year and a half, and share our vision for what it could be moving forward. In this episode, we're discussing school leadership in a new era, and we've invited local experts who can best speak to where we might go from here. Let me introduce everyone to you. So today's all-star cast includes first, Monica Murray, has spent her year in, has spent her career helping students and staff reach their fullest potential through mastery of learning, establishing an environment of building relationships, providing immediate feedback to employ optimum student engagement on a daily basis. Prior to serving as principal, Monica served as an assistant principal at Armstrong High School, where she facilitated clear goals for curriculum and instruction, backward design for the creation of lesson plans, allocation of resources and evaluation of teachers regularly to promote student learning and growth. Prior to her role as assistant principal, Monica served at the Richmond Public School RPS system as a teacher at Thomas C. Buffall Middle, Onslow Mini Middle School, George Wythe High School, and John Marshall High School, where she was named RPS Teacher of the Year finalist and REB Awards for Teaching Excellence finalist. Monica earned her Bachelor's of Science degree from Virginia University and both her Master's and Certificate of Education Leadership from Virginia Commonwealth University. Welcome, Monica. Second, we have Jonathan Becker, JD, PhD. He's an Associate Professor in the Department of Education Leadership of the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University. Dr. Becker's teaching and scholarly endeavors occur at the intersection of education technology, policy, law, and leadership. Dr. Becker recently served a five-year stint as VCU's Director of Learning Innovation, where he worked with a team to develop the Academic Learning Transformation Lab, the ALT Lab, as a center of pedagogical innovation for the university. Good afternoon, John. Good to have you with us. Third, we have Chris Martinez, who is entering his fourth year as principal at Patrick Henry High School. This year will be his 14th year in Hanover County Public Schools and 17th year overall in education. From 2015 to 2018, he was an assistant principal at Atlee High School. From 2013 to 15, he worked as a teacher, math department chair, and assistant activities director at Atlee High School. And from 2008 to 2013, he was a teacher and football coach in Mechanicsville High School. He has a bachelor's degree in mathematics from Virginia Commonwealth University, a master's degree in secondary education from Virginia Commonwealth University, and a post-master's certificate in administration and supervision from Virginia Commonwealth University. He currently resides in Glen Allen with his wife, Nadia, daughter, Aaliyah, and sons, Adrian and Avery. Good to have you, Chris. And finally, we have Dr. Robert Lowry. He has served as the director for Maggie L. Walker Governor's School in Richmond, Virginia for the past four years. Prior to arriving at Maggie Walker, he was the principal of Tucker High School for four years and the principal of Virginia Randolph Community High School for 10 years, both in Henrico County. He's earned degrees from Virginia Tech, Virginia Commonwealth University, and received his gifted education endorsement from the University of Virginia. Dr. Lowry spent 25 years in public education and considers himself to have been blessed to have had such a rewarding career. 
He lives in Glen Allen with Tracy, his wife of 27 years, where they raised two wonderful kids who have served their country. One is a current Naval officer and one is a retired Peace Corps volunteer. Thank you for joining us today, Bob, and thank you to our panel. It is great to have you all here with us today. So let's roll right into the questions and start having a dialogue about leadership in a new era. Monica, I wonder if you wouldn't mind starting for us. Could you just tell me what your job was like this past year? Thank you, Brian, for having me. And I'm so honored to be on this panel. Um, when I say challenging, um, I'm sure everybody on this panel would agree. It was the busiest year of my educational career. The fact that I was at home leading uh, students and faculty members means my work never stopped. It was always on. And I felt like I had to really, really uh, put myself in a position where I was making sure that I had time for myself and my family uh, and do the job that we were uh, put in front, that was put in front of us. So it was challenging because it was difficult to turn it off uh, working from home virtually this year. Yeah, very much. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, like I said, just like Monica said, it's definitely a, a you know, honor to be here so we can share a little bit of uh, our last year. But I will say the same thing, Echo, even though I was in a full face-to-face -face setting Monday through Friday from the start of the school year, it's understanding where is the balance, where is that line? Like, you know, you know, I was getting phone calls or emails throughout the night, but then I'd have to contact Trace. You know, so understanding that, hey, wait a minute, I'm at home, but am I really at home? Am I off? Um, I think that's, you know, as leaders in, in, in buildings of schools, you know, you understand that when you get into that role that, there's really not really a time to truly unconnect or disconnect. Um, but I, I would say I did not do a great job of uh, modeling for my other admin team members what balance looks like. So I would say that, you know, this, this year was definitely unique, but I tell you what, a, a lot of the things that you took away was understanding that we made the best out of what we could out of a year that no one else could. I mean, whoever thought it was coming, but I think we, you know, we had to you know, understand that, you know, it could have been a lot worse, but we, we made the best of it for our kids and, being able to see them graduate in June was it was quite a, a pleasure. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Chris. Bob. Yeah, I would I would say that both of my colleagues here nailed it. I think one of the things that made this year really challenging was the the number of critical decisions that we had to make where we didn't have all the information. Um, you know, I've, I've always said in school administration, it's very rare that you have to make snap decisions right now. You know, if there's a, a safety or security incident, something's going on, you got to deal with it immediately. But normally we have time to reflect, gather information, bring people together and make decisions. And I think one of the things that I found to be incredibly frustrating is that, you know, there were multiple sources of information that were in conflict. And then we were being tasked to make a decision based on changing information and information that was in conflict with each other. Uh, you know, Maggie Walker is kind of a unique environment because at the time we had 12 districts that we feed from. And just on this call, I've got one that didn't see your kids on campus the entire year. The other one who saw his kids on campus all the time and then everything in between. And we were trying to sort of figure out, well, how do we create this environment, you know, that's going to meet everybody's needs? Because our region is so big that, you know, COVID affected different areas in different ways. And so uh, I think that was one of the toughest things. And, you know, no disrespect to VCU's excellent education program, as, as all of us have pieces of it. And man, they don't teach that stuff in admin school. They don't teach <laughs> pandemic 101, you know, and, and cut you loose. And I think that's one of the things that I will remember for this year more than anything else, aside from just the fear and the emotional stuff that we all handled, was having to make these decisions, honestly not knowing if I was making the best decision. You know, thinking, I think I'm doing the best I can with what I got, but I just don't know if that's good enough. And that's for most of us as administrators, we usually know when we're making the right decision, if people, even if people aren't going to like it. But this year was a different year, and I, I still don't know if we necessarily made the right decisions. It's interesting you said that, too, because in education, we all uh, bank on how important, you know, standard two is and everything, which is instructional planning. And to know that normally, you know, you plan a given school year over almost like five to six months, seven months. And knowing that we were making decisions on what the school looked like within two to three weeks of when school was going to open. Um, it just goes against everything that we've probably ever been taught with planning and making sure that you know, cross every T, dot every I. So, but it also, as leaders, it made you had to really think, like you said, think on your feet more than we probably ever had to do before. You know, you. Bob's point is right. We don't, we don't teach that class. There's no textbook on pandemic planning. In, in fact, I would say, 
we teach just the opposite for, to Bob's point. Like we emphasize data-driven decision-making, right? But we don't emphasize decision-making in the absence of, of data. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. What an important point. I don't know if anybody's writing that textbook, but apparently there's some space out there now, or there's certainly lessons learned that can be added. So Chris, let me turn back to you. So what have you learned from online learning that will better inform instruction when we are all back in person? And then others feel free to jump in. So it's interesting, you know, when I was thinking about that question, uh, it's really not what I learned from it really isn't something that's completely new. It's really not even really learning. It's, it's really coming back to what we already know, which is you got to get to know your kids. You know, it's, it's you know, we talk about pre-assessments before we get into units, you know, you know, with teacher clarity, talking about your learning progressions and, you know, what, what kids uh, know and what they need to know. But the first thing is you got to know what they need and know them. Um, I think this year, more than any, what I've really taken back is you got to start off and, and focus on what matters first, which is building those relationships, which is all of what, you know, you see behind me, probably if you guys can see on my screen, it says family. You know, at PH, we spell everything with PH. And of course, we're talking about family. But you, you got to get to know your kids. You got to build a relationship, not with just your kids, but with also your colleagues with your business partners, your community members, your families, um, because it's going to take a village, especially in a time like this past year. You know, we've always said it growing up when I was a kid, it takes a village to raise a kid. Well, in, in a pandemic, it takes a village just to make sure we're supporting all, all of our kids properly. And I think one of the things in, from the in online learning, from seeing a lot of our kids and our teachers working at platform is being able to differentiate instruction, you know, giving every kid what they need um, and not just teaching one way. I, I know it's something we talk about all the time, We've got to make sure that we're thinking about the different types of learners in our classroom and in designing instruction that's purposeful, that's meaningful, and also is relevant to the kids so that we can engage kids in deeper learning. Um, so I think a lot of those things are they're not really new, um, but it goes back to planning, which we didn't get a lot of, uh, but hopefully we've used this time over the, the summer to do a lot more planning prepare. Yeah, thank you. I, I will share just as an aside that I did a number of observations from teachers that were working exclusively online. And when I often do post observations, I'd ask that question, like, as you move back into the classroom, hopefully in the fall, have you learned anything from this experience that will inform your teaching moving forward? And a lot of them, it was communication. It was the use of technology. It was new tools they hadn't used before. But for many of them, it was absolutely just the fundamental man, we have to figure out new ways to get to know our kids, to reach our families, things that we should always be doing, but maybe now we have some new avenues to do it. Monica, please jump in. Yeah, I ha often had conversations with my teachers at the beginning of the pandemic when we started last school year and their cry was, oh my goodness, I'm becoming a, a virtual instructor overnight. And they have learned so many tools in the virtual environment uh, that we had to have conversations about, okay, when we return to in class, now that our district is a one-to-one -one district, how do we merge and create mm -hmm. a hybrid experience now? Because we can't walk back into the classroom and completely go and do all of the virtual activities and, and use all those resources solely, but we got to figure out how to integrate that back into the in-person uh, setting so that, again, we are using those tools to differentiate instruction for students. And it goes back to what Chris said, making sure we understand what the needs of our students and building those relationships relationships are. So, uh, Bob, if I could turn it back to you for a second, let me follow up on that. What do you think our previously familiar practices, you know, look like now, now that we might be in this hybrid, now that we do have these other options? And do you think that that's created new practices that, that are going to be accepted? And I'll tell you what, what jumps right into my mind. Those kids that have been online all year have been dropping things privately into the chat room and found new ways to communicating. And, and I, like, I mean, I might just be privately communicating with the teacher if I want to answer a question instead of raising my hand in front of the whole class. If I needed to new, use the restroom, I, I just did it. You know, it was so many things that I wonder if we have to reteach um, both our teachers and our students because they, many of them just haven't been in that environment for so long. So well, I, I think that's you. No, that's an excellent point, especially what you just said there at the end. I mean, if you think about, and just a real quick recap for folks, if you remember what it was like when we when we left, it was Friday the 13th, March 20, March of 2020. And we went home for thinking it was going to be two weeks. So it was kind of like, I mean, I hate, I hate to put this announcement, it was almost like a snow day. And we all just kind of left. And it was like everything was good. And then a few days into the next week, we got the word that they were going to extend it out a week, which would carry us to spring break for most of the districts. 
which would then add a week organically. And so now we're going to be out for a month and this pandemic thing is going to be gone because we know it only takes 14 days and yada, yada. And we had this full intention that we were going to come back to school. And then all of a sudden we found out we weren't. Uh, and I don't know if the other districts were the same as me, but I mean, I found out about these things on, you know, my Channel 8 News app. It was, it was not like they gave us a two-day head start and said, here's what's happening. Here's the announcement the governor's going to make. It, it, we found out about it the same way everyone else did. And all of a sudden it was like a fire. I mean, it was a, a fire. The house was on fire. You grab what you could, you ran out the door. And we had to figure out, you know, what would instruction look like? And we don't have a one-to-one -one initiative. What's instruction going to look like for the rest of the year? You know, what, simple things. How are we going to get back our soccer uniforms? What are we going to do with books? And just all the things that you would normally have thought about, let alone graduation, prom, and all that. We knew that was going to be something completely different. Um, so there was a, a tremendous shock to the system without any preparation to be able to kind of figure out how to transition. And that's the same experience our kids had. And they've been gone, you know, in many cases. I mean, we, we opened back up on March 15th of this year, and only about 40% of our kids chose to come back. So I've got large chunks of kids who, who've been out of school for a year and a quarter, roughly, um, all of my rising ninth graders, many of them have been out. Many of them, my current ninth graders, they've never been to a pep rally. They've never been, you know, and, and Maggie Walker is the type of school that has a lot of traditions. Well, my inbound freshman class doesn't know about any of them. My current sophomore class that were freshmen last year doesn't know anything about them. My juniors were only in school for three quarters and they missed out on all the end. So my seniors, the ones who we rely on so much for student leadership, they haven't really had a full school year since they were freshmen. And when you start putting all that together, it's a frightening proposition. You know, there's there's a great opportunity, I think, to be able to do new things because maybe some things that we didn't we've been doing we don't we don't really want to do anymore. But we are going to have to reteach. And unless education makes the full shift to a hybrid model, which which Maggie Walker is not really set up to do, we're an in-person school. So we're going to have to reteach kids just the basics. I mean, I, I was out of town this weekend uh, to a wedding and was in two situations where I found myself in a room with more people than I'd been around in over a year. And it was, you know, I'm, I'm vaccinated. I wasn't worried about that, but it was a psychological effect of almost being claustrophobic in a room that was a ballroom that had, you know, a ton of wedding guests in it. We're going to have to reteach that. And I think one thing that concerns me as we roll through this, and this is a piece that I would I would hope that everybody's thinking about, you know, COVID's not a light switch. We're not just going to come back to school in September and say, okay, it's all good. Everyone's good. Um, there's going to be trauma. We're going to have to support our kids that have, uh, you know, maybe lost somebody to COVID. There's, it's not just a matter of, okay, cool. It's the first day of school. We're all ready to go again. Um, there's going to be a lot that we need to learn and relearn and, and, and kind of reevaluate. Is this the way we want to do things? I mean, to your point about communication, there were benefits that we had using Zoom that we had never seen before. I had higher turnout at PTA meetings. You know, a PTA board meeting on campus, we might have had 15, 16 people. We do it online, we've got 30. That's something I think that we want to keep. I think that, uh, you know, the governor's school directors, we all have uh, quarterly meetings where we travel around. Well, we did it all on Zoom, but we had much better turnout. So maybe there's some things that we learned by remote. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sold that it's a that it's the best model for delivering instruction. Um, I just, I think that the personal interaction between a teacher and a student and a child is, is critical. And I, I'm just not convinced that on, on a remote call like this, you're able to do that. I haven't been sold on that yet, but there are pieces of communication and teaming and projects. You know, if the kids are gonna do a project, now this will be a lot easier for the kids to work together since they all have Zoom. Or, or, or Google, whatever platform you're using um, than they've ever had before. So I think that there are pieces from the technology that are gonna become very helpful and can become really useful with teaching, particularly on projects, group work, that type of stuff. Um, but I really just don't see it taking over that, that interaction between the teacher and the student in the classroom. And, and, I, and I'll close by just saying, you know, I've talked to many friends of mine that were in other districts that had varying policies on whether or not the cameras needed to be on. And, you know, they didn't even know if their kids were actually in the room while they were doing it. And I think that having the kids back on campus when it's safe to do so, hopefully that'll be September. Uh, I think that's the way to go, my opinion. Thank you. Chris and then John. Yeah, I was going to say there's a, like you talked about some of the things that we were able to take advantage of that we never thought to, it'll be more common 
just the ability for our teachers to connect with others around the district without having to carve out so much time. Because, you know, sometimes if you're that one teacher in your building who teaches just, you're the only one of you. To find that time to, you know, talk about different kinds of planning and activities, that's more of a, a chore because you have to figure out what works in that person's schedule and all that. With Zoom, it, it can allow that. And the table from principal side of it, did not get pulled out of my building so many different times during the year to pull me away from where I really need to be. And I know it's very important to the PD and I'm all for those. We did a lot, all of our meetings on Zoom, and we made them shorter and more to the point and get more efficient with it. Uh, I, th those were the things that, that definitely will keep going. One of the things our district did last year was the first day of school. We're talking about transition. Last year, the first day of school were only for our ninth grade students. And now this coming year coming up, it'll be for ninth grade students and then any student who will be transitioning back from being online either the whole year last year or the semester. So we can, like you talked about how kids have come in with, this may be the first time they've been in a room with more than five people. You know, they're going to come into school. So it's all about making sure that we're making them feel comfortable. And so to have that day of transition where we educate some of our kids about, you know, here's the expectations in school. And this is the crazy part for us. You know, I know for you guys, you, you're experiencing, but we've had kids, we had to think about, well, like, wait a minute, we're going to have 10th graders who've never set foot in our building, who didn't even finish up their end of their eighth grade year. And why that's so hard for us here is that we've had so many kids that were in our building. So it's thinking about how do we support two different types of kids and, you know, and how we support them with what they're, you know, comfortable with, you know, and, and making them feel, you know, safe in the school and all different things is, is, you know, the part that we're really focused in on. And we're hoping on that, that transition day where we've got a team together to plan out different activities to do, get the kids understanding what the culture is at Patrick Henry, uh, making them aware of all the things and supports and resources there for them will help that hopefully we can do that. Yeah, thank you. John, please jump in. Yeah, I um, we're talking about sort of what changes might kind of stick beyond uh, this last year, and I I think that um, Bob is generally right in that um, virtual learning, distance education, whatever you want to call, call it, um, isn't isn't great for the vast majority of kids. That being said, there there are significant groups of kids for whom it has proven to be quite I don't know if effective is the right word, but um, there are groups of kids who found it um, more palatable than face-to-face. -face. And I would say particularly kids who felt out of place in a school, feel out of place in a school building, uh, kids who are ostracized, kids who are marginalized. And what, and what we're seeing are a number of families who, who would like to continue. And so a number of our school divisions are, you know, planning to keep a, you know, an online academy or whatever they want to call it. And I know quite a few have had you know, hundreds of inquiries from families, families who said, um, this is actually better for my kid. Now, whether it's actually better for learning, depending on how we want to think about learning, is I guess to be determined. Um, but it, it does seem like um, we would do well to make sure we continue to offer those virtual learning opportunities for the families that, that want it. Um, my concern about that, though, is Chesterfield's going to have their own online academy. Hanover's going to have their own RPS. I mean, it seems that maybe there could be some efficiencies achieved if we could somehow find a way to collaborate among the divisions. We have the same problem in higher education where VCU has its online MBA and UVA has its online MBA. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure that sort of competition really is necessary in the online space where collaboration is much more possible. And so I would love to see our school divisions maybe come together and maybe regionally in region one area uh, to think about how we can best serve our kids collaboratively and, and regionally. Yeah, that's a great idea. So were you volunteering on a podcast to lead that effort? Uh, I'll help. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. It's a great idea. Thank you, John. Monica, you want to jump in? Yeah, John, that just brings up one of the things that I've been passionate about, and that's alternative education and, and finding ways to reach students who the normal in-person uh, uh, learning experience or environment doesn't work for them. And I agree, we found great success with some of our students who typically were our hall walkers or students who had attendance issues, the virtual environment worked for them. And so we're always looking for ways to uh, increase those opportunities. 
and use a collaboration across the district. So now I don't have to necessarily say to a child, I can't offer German because I don't have a German teacher, but I can look throughout the district and see how can we um, partner up and offer courses that we typically don't get to offer. And we've had uh, remote learning before, but this has really brought it back to the forefront. Yeah. Monica, I wonder if I could continue you on that theme a little bit. Um, when you mentioned reaching those kids and, and, and finding ways to collaborate and work with folks, how, how do you think communication has changed uh, in, the, in the past year or how might it change as we move forward into the fall? Immediately when the announcement was made, March 13th, 14th, we went to social media. And we beefed up and created a huge presence on social media because we knew that that was the best way to be able to contact both our parents, our community at large, uh, and our students. And so that was one of the things that changed in our communication. We couldn't rely on mail. We couldn't rely on phone calls. Oftentimes, you know, our numbers, the kids, the students, families, they change, they move. So we couldn't rely on those things. And it was always easier when you find them in the building, you can get that message across. Well, in this virtual environment, and because we were we remained virtual the entire year, uh, that really, really was something that we had to focus on. Uh, and then this, again, this virtual space where we could communicate with students through our Google Classrooms or Zoom or or emails, we had to teach and train students how to write and respond to emails. And so that was a huge learning curve for uh, our families and our students. Yeah, thank you. Chris, go ahead. It's, it's interesting you talked to about communication. I think uh, Bob said something about this earlier about, uh, I can't remember who it was, about PTAs and things. It was interesting. So like we did a few meetings virtually for parents. And like you said, like you just hitting back on how, it was, um, how much more the participation increased. We went from, I think, 10 for one of our uh, webinars to like 70. You know, normally in an in-person situation when we did our, our uh, Solomon O'Brien, like they talked about they'd only get about 10 people. And we had 70 folks log in for two and a half hours to a webinar on Solomon Moore and the opiate crisis and things like that. And to know that it just makes you think, all right, so how can we reach our people? It's knowing the best way to reach them. Um, and I will tell you that the amount of, uh, you know, even though I had a, a lot of my kids were online, I had about 700 start the semester face-to-face -face and about 600 online. Well, I still was able to communicate with my families through Zoom, through Google Meets and say, hey, oh, we, we need to talk. I'm going to invite your mom to this meeting and we'll have a talk. It, just being able to know that for a lot of our families, because all of them have cell phones and all of them have, normally could get somewhere where they had a Wi-Fi or have a data plan, hopefully, unless they're at home, some spots out in Beaver Dead, so don't have good internet access or, or cell phone. But to be able to really kind of meet with them on their terms where they actually had the time, because a lot of our families can't sacrifice that time because, you know, I want to come to this uh, parents, you know, teacher conference, but I got a bill to pay. And, you know, that, it's not that they don't want to be a part of that conversation. It's how can we make them easier, make it easier for them to be a part of it. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Bob, jump in. Yeah, I was going to say, Chris hit it right at the very end there when he was talking about the parent conferences. We had the best parent conference turnout we've ever had. Uh, and the feedback that we received from both the teachers and the parents was that, you know, we're, we're glad to send our kids back to school next September, but we want to keep the online parent conferences. Uh, because you were able to, you know, block off time, you know, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever they signed up for in advance. Okay, you know, you had them in the waiting room because the teachers each had their own individual Zoom room. Okay, you know, Dr. Martinez, thank you so much, but we're out of time and I've got somebody waiting. Click and you brought the next person in, it, it was fantastic. And that's something that we'll absolutely do. And again, you know, when you remember the size of our footprint that runs from Petersburg to uh, King and Queen County and Goochland all the way over to New Kent and pretty much everything in, now we've added Colonial Heights and Dinwiddie. That's a haul to come up here, you know, drive, drive 45 minutes to an hour in some cases for a 15 minute parent conference. You know, as, as Chris was saying, you kind of do the math on that and not everybody is, is that's not going to work for everybody. So I think in the communication area, you know, I had I had teachers that back in March of 20 when we left could, and I'll be honest, could barely send an email. They were just old school teachers that did it the old school way. And now they're working with breakout rooms and Zoom and um, because they were forced to, they had to do that. And I think that there are some things that we did pick up in the communication area that we would be very wise to explore and continue to exploit 
uh, to our advantage because it engaged more people than we've ever been able to engage before. So I, I wonder if I could follow up with anybody can jump in. What I'm hearing is that we've learned some lessons, but have we already started building into sort of our non-negotiables and our expectations that these are things that we will be using versus these are things we could be using? Yeah, you can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I mean, right. it's, you know, there are some things that, that we did that we probably don't want to do again, you know, uh, that we had to learn some tough lessons on, but absolutely uh, with the communication piece. And like Chris said, not everybody has Wi-Fi, but just about everybody has a phone and can get to some place where they can get a signal. We had a few things, and we'll, I guess we can talk about that later with equity, but um, by and large, most people have a phone and were able to get on one and make it work. So I think there are some things that we picked up that were definitely positive. Yeah, thanks. Monica, please jump in. And I tell you, numbers that we couldn't connect with through uh, our um, system where we push phone calls through, if we sent a text before, say, this is the principal getting ready to call you, we would get an immediate response through a text message. So making sure that we have sales numbers and keeping those numbers up to date is part of our, our uh, front office staff duties now. So calling and making sure that those numbers are up to date so that we can, and we keep a running system now of updated cell phone numbers of parents and students because a text message will go a long way now. So that's totally interesting. And I hadn't heard that. Let me make sure I heard you right. You would text the parent a principal is about to call and then make the call. That's awesome. I had not previously heard that idea. Just so you know, not to ignore this random number you don't know, it's it's me. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So I, I wonder, um, and maybe Chris, if you're comfortable starting us out, uh, and if you're willing to share any personal stories or, or things that you saw from the community, your kids, what are some of the most impactful events uh, of your work from this past year? The first day of school welcoming you know, 600 plus kids back in the building. I will tell you in Hanover, because we were the only school in the area going five days a week. It was, it was, a, it, it was great just to see kids. I'll say that. Um, it was, of course, you know, at first a little like, hey, what's this day going to look like? How's this going to be? Are we, are we, how long are we going to be open, you know, face to face? But just being able to have our kids come in, even though they had masks on and everything, and seeing, but just knowing that we were here to support them and, and just to, to see them. Um, but there were some additional things I think we all probably are aware of that happened during the pandemic that probably don't get as much talk about as, you know, the, the social emotional piece. You know, I, unfortunately, we we lost two kids to um, uh, overdoses over over the pandemic. Um, and when I tell you, it's never an easy time to, you know, or have a good time ever to lose kids. But, you know, when you it, it just has you question like, hey, if, if we were in person face to face, would somebody have saw something? Would somebody have been able to say something to prevent? Because that's what we talk about. You know, you know, when it's something that doesn't happen, we're like, all right, what could I have done to prevent it? Because we're reflective, right? In education. You know, so you think about like the level of uh, you know, you know, mental health that was out there for our kids who were secluded, didn't have what they needed, and didn't have someone to see them. You know, I think that's the part that you just sit will always sit there and wonder, is there, is was there something I could have done, or is there anything I could have done to support this child differently? Um, um, but, you know, you have those things and you do things for your community to help them get through those events. And, th and then you come on the other side of it and you get to see those kids graduate in June. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that you're, you, you were maybe sad for during the year, but there was a lot of things that we celebrate, you know, seeing our kids, supporting them through tough times, and then also get a chance to celebrate with them on graduation. Yeah, the, the social emotional piece you just mentioned sort of was a loud and clear message throughout the school year, not only with the overdoses, but just generally, you know, if you're in a classroom and you're looking at a kid and you see that they come in a certain way, they're not paying attention, they're off, you've gotten to know them. As you mentioned earlier, you've built that relationship and you can keep them after class. You can put a hand on their shoulder. You can ask them how they are. You can pull in those additional resources. And that just became increasingly hard in a virtual world, especially at times when kids had their cameras off or they were muted and you just didn't have that same level of, of personal dialogue. So. I totally get that. Bob, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to sort of echo what, what Chris said, too. We saw a significant in, uh, uptick in mental health um, situations over the course of the year. And, and like you also said, you know, there was at the same time we're having more kids having mental health issues. There was a complete lack of ability for them to be able to get help because everybody was virtual. And, and for quite some time, it was really rough. I would say you know, that, that human connection piece, and I guess this is uh, where I keep coming back to, 
you know, I, I can think of several occasions during the school year, but uh, where I saw it, but we, you know, we tried to make some opportunities for kids to be able to see each other. And we did a, a, a drive-in movie in our parking lot and go on this gigantic inflatable screens and, and showed uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is ageless to teenagers. And the it, everyone was masked up. I mean, you know, this is back in, in October when we were still kind of on the, the, the very scary side of the pandemic. But just the excitement that the kids had at being on campus, uh, of running around, seeing their friends. You know, we made them all socially distanced. We did the best we could to keep them spread out. Um, but just seeing that. And then when we did um, our senior night, you know, which is kind of a, a unique event that we have here, you know, all of the seniors and their parents in the auditorium for the first time. And again, they're masked up. This is after the governor had lifted the mandate on, on crowd sizes. And it was just such an emotional event to, to be together where we hadn't been for, for so long. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of that in the, in the uh, startup of school this year is that just that connected, the, the importance of the, the human connectiveness. Um, and, you know, and I noticed for what it's worth, you have three high school folks uh, and Dr. Becker on the, on the call. I can't even begin to wrap my head around what this looked like to a third grade teacher or a kindergarten teacher. I mean, and we, and we did some things here at school. We ran a daycare for our teachers who were teaching remotely from our school so that their kids could participate in school. And we hired somebody using CARES money to monitor it. So we, had, we called it the Dragon Academy. About, about 15 to 17 folks took advantage of that. So I could put my head in there once in a while and see what a third grader and how they were learning because they were from all kinds of different counties. But I, I just can't even imagine what that was like for, for the little ones um, and, the, and the teachers who are trying to make those connections with seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, just hats off to them. I mean, just seriously, the, the work that they did should be, you know, they ought, they ought to build monuments for those folks to be able to pull that off. It's hard enough in high school. I just can't imagine what it was like in middle and elementary. Yeah, thank you. Monica. Yeah, and this year for me, um... When I say challenging, it was really challenging. So when I think about the fact that we graduated 94% uh, of our students, it's a moment to celebrate really this year. And for me personally, um, I never began to question God and what he does, but in February, I lost my father. And in October, I lost my mom to COVID. Sorry. And so I, I wondered, you know, oftentimes, you know, why all of that so much? But then I look at the amount of students who I had to console to grief and my teachers. I had several teachers lose family members um, to COVID. And so it just built some resistance and some tools. For me, it was probably the first time I had ever um, sat down and talked to somebody about grief. And those created or gave me tools where I was able to support many of my staff and students throughout this time. So Graduation was a truly a, a celebratory event for us. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to hear yeah. about your, your personal news there. I'm, I'm glad you're here with us today. Thank you. Yeah, John, you know, I, I, while we're on the on the theme of celebrating and, and we talked about uh, mental health and the students, we ought to really think deeply about mental health of our educators. And this was a tough year to begin with. And on top of that, um, for a number of reasons, schools became kind of the center of the political universe. And um, way too many educators have been the brunt of some really harsh criticism uh, that's, that, from my perspective, is entirely unwarranted. I mean, you all, principals, system principals, superintendents, had to literally, like, turn the Titanic on a dime, right? Like, you, you had to re entirely re reinvent what you do from a teaching and learning perspective. And yet people were unsatisfied and felt a need to express that without any empathy for, for what educators are going through. You know, I, all my students are all teachers and principals and assistant principals. And they, they, had to, they had to do this work of turning the Titanic on a dime while being parents with kids at home. I mean, just, you know, we, we've had conversations about what an essential worker is this year. And I just want to give a, a shout out to educators in the region and across this country for just being real true heroes this year. Yeah, thanks, John. It, you know, you bring up the point about the teachers and what's interesting is we were asking all of them to uh, instruct in a way that they've never done before with tools 
that they've probably never used before while being led by folks who have never led that way before, right? So, uh, you know, us uh, that were in the schools or working at central office, trying to coach people through this, it was a new experience for everyone. And it was certainly stressful and it was traumatic on top of all the other levels of trauma that were going on. So uh, to come out this the other side and, and hopefully we're in a great place come the fall, but there's, there's been a lot of work that's certainly gone into it to get us this, to this place. Um, Bob, that's actually a great uh, transition. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what, what have we learned about equity or what have, what have you guys learned in this past year? Well, we learned that we assumed way too much uh, for starters um, on just on a very practical standpoint, you know, not all of our kids had laptops. A lot of our kids did not have laptops. Uh, and we don't have the, we didn't have the ability to do a one-to-one. So we, we had some, we were able to get them, you know, material to kind of salvage the end of last year, the end of 20, class of 20. Um, and over the summer, we were able to, to get laptops into the hands of kids using, again, using CARES money. Um, but then having a laptop doesn't work well if you can't get onto the internet. So we got them all, you know, the little Khajiit cell phone tower things. Well, that's great. But if you don't have access to cell phone signal, and, and Chris probably can attest to this, parts of Western Hanover, Western Goochland, Western Powhatan, that there's a strip right there. It's the same strip that if you have a, an XM radio in your car, it cuts out when you're, when you're driving along. Um, you know, that there were things we had, we had kids that, that could not access the material. There's no way to do it. Uh, one of them I know of in, in a, one of our rural counties had to drive 20 minutes to uh, a person that had an insurance company uh, and they sat in the lobby of the insurance company that had Wi-Fi that he was able to use. You know, we found out that there were material inequities. Um, we found out that, you know, and, and, and again, when you, when you think about this situation with multi-level families. So if mom or dad or both are working and the school is virtual and the high school age kid is at home with his little brother and sister and they're having to monitor their little brother and sister to make sure that they're getting their work while they're also in class, um, you know, there were just huge equity issues of access. And, you know, even though our school is populated by some, some pretty pretty bright kids, that doesn't supersede that at all. And we had not anticipated, you know, we, we would think we had one thing beat and then we would find something else. And where it really hit us with that last point where we had, you know, okay, mom and dad are working, whether they're remotely working or working from uh, remotely working or in person, they have jobs that they're trying to do to be able to keep the family going. At the same time, the high school age kid is having to monitor the younger kids to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing at the cost of themselves. Um, and it did not equally impact everybody. And that there was a huge equity issue with that. Yeah. And how about that family that didn't have the high school kid, just had the elementary age kid? Who's watching them? Yeah. So. Like I said earlier, I can't I can't even wrap my head around the work that, that those folks did. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else want to jump in? Please, Monica. And I would say that that lack of internet access does not um, just die out in rural areas, but our students are rock throws away, depending on the makeup of the house or if they lived in in um, um, impoverished areas where there are cinder blocks surrounding them. I cannot tell you how many phone calls we finally got in the middle of the year saying, we just get a signal and we have supplied hotspots and done all of that um, and offered opportunities for them to go somewhere. But then there's a transportation issue. Mm -hmm. If they can't get to the facility where they can find the Internet, uh, the transportation stopped a lot of that, too. Yeah, Brian, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to um, kind of pitch uh, work that we did with with Merck, who's hosting this podcast mm -hmm. around digital equity. And we over the last year, we wrote a couple of research uh, reports and briefs about digital equity. And so I encourage folks to go read them. The, the sort of gist of it is that um, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, schools and school leaders bent over backwards to try to deal with some of these issues, you know, the, the giving out of laptops, the feeding kids who needed to be fed, the um, dishing out the, the Khajiit device, whatever it, it took to get people to a basic level of being able to, 
to do the work of, of schooling. Um, and that was, that was fantastic. And everyone should be celebrated for what, what was accomplished early days. Um, the, the briefs sort of talk about, okay, now that we've, we've, we managed that sort of need really early on, um, what would it look like if we thought kind of bigger picture and um, what can we do as a, as a nation, as a community to overcome some of these things? So like the access issues, there's really not much schools can do, but we need our government officials to, um, to pass legislation, to uh, commit money to funding our infrastructure around internet. I mean, the internet is, it, it's indispensable. We, we, for better or worse, we really can't live without it these days. And our school children, our families shouldn't suffer because they live in a community that doesn't have access. We should, we should find a way to make sure they have access. Um, we have to do a better job of um, preparing teachers. And, you know, I work in a school of education and I think we um, have our work cut out for, for us to figure out how, how we can better prepare teachers for, for this new world. Um, teachers, again, you know, learned all kinds of new tricks this last year. Um, but maybe they shouldn't have had to learn them. Maybe they um, should have should should have been prepared by us to to be more fluent and literate with with technology. So there are a lot of kind of longer term equity issues that I hope we can, if we ever get out of this pandemic, and hopefully sometime soon. You know what what are the sort of long term issues we can tackle now? Now that the pandemic has really shined a light on inequities that already existed pre pandemic. Yeah, no, that's actually a great point. It's not like these things didn't, they weren't currently an issue with technology and communication and access. It's just not only was it exasperated, but there was also a spotlight shined on it where I think there's now a much broader recognition to the fact that there's a problem there and that we're hopefully doing everything we can to, to build those bridges and, and fix those issues. Yeah, so, so the, um, California, just, California just announced that um, all kids in all schools get free lunch. Um, which is, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, I think, I think some families were surprised to learn that kids didn't have access to a meal if they didn't go to school. And we shouldn't um, have those kids stand out. Everyone should have access to a meal through schooling. I don't know that we'll get that done in Virginia, but it's, it's an interesting sort of equity consideration from a policy perspective. Well, you know, it's the first time it was mentioned uh, during our conversation today, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of our first concerns when we went from that uh, couple of days or a couple of weeks to a month to the food access and that food insecurity. And then as folks were out of jobs long term and transportation and housing became issues, and again, just that the socioeconomic impact was was great and just rippled and had such an incredible impact on not only our kids, but our parents, our communities, our teachers uh, had similar issues that, you know, for many, they're actually still confronting uh, and will. So that's sort of the trauma as we move into this, this upcoming year. Though, though I'll ship slightly, and, and Monica, I heard a phrase recently, and it was return to better. And it struck me as a very hopeful phrase. And so I was thinking that about the context of, of what we learned and how we move into the fall. And so I would ask you to begin and then anybody else to jump in. What, what might that mean to you? What might that mean to your school and community? So we have often talked about this as we begin to plan to return after students have really been away from us for about two years and how we talk about those students who are coming to the building. Our population is larger of students who are returning to the building who haven't been in the building for um, over two years. And then we have a staff that's returning to the building that has never walked or set up a classroom in our building. And how do we take advantage of this opportunity? How do we make education different? How do we learn from this virtual environment and bring that into our in-class setting and, and really get back to our, what we've been saying, back to the basics of education? where we are really building relationships with students and really, really teaching and, and growing students to be prepared for whether it's the workforce or to higher education and really getting back to true that true basics of teaching and learning where everyone walks out the door saying, okay, this is what we did today and I know that I can do it because. So that's really what we're working on now is, is, is how, how we make that look different how we take advantage of what we learn in the virtual environment and really bring that into in-person learning. Yeah, thank you so much, Monica. Chris, go ahead. You know, for a while, it's all about, you know, reframing. Instead of focusing on learning loss, we, we talk more of learning acceleration. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's how can we, you know, help our kids get even more uh, out of you know the time they have with us. And I think it goes back to, you know, focusing on uh, evaluating instruction, providing the feedback, and also making sure that instruction that is being delivered is very meaningful, very student driven, um, and using a lot of the relevant examples that are meaningful to kids that they can connect to. Um, I think from the pandemic, what we've learned is our teachers are very are more innovative than they ever give themselves credit for. Uh, for what they were able to come up with in, in a short amount of time, you know, just give you guys a little bit of a snapshot in us last year. Uh, my teacher did not know what they were teaching up until the Tuesday before during teacher work week. So, you know, normally you talk about all the lesson planning and it all goes on. They know what their schedule is. And that's only happens. They leave with us. They know what to teach. They had to come up with an innovative instruction for some of our teachers and classes they haven't taught in years, but they were able to do it. And I, I think that's more of a, you know, a tribute to them caring about what matters most is doing best, what's best for kids and, and investing in them. Uh, so I think, you know, ensuring that what we're doing this year is more purposeful and meaningful as, as it can be for our kids and so they can really connect to the context to the learning to help them get a little deeper understanding of it um, can really help uh, accelerate their learning in, as opposed to focusing on the loss that they, that they had. Yeah, thank you so much. Anybody else want to jump in with any thoughts there? Yeah, I think I think that, you know, kind of like I said earlier when I talked about the fact that so many kids haven't been in school for so long, there's there's great anxiety about, you know, reopening in a month. And as, as Dr. Becker said, and I think it was kind of an offhand comment, but boy, it rings so true, you know, if this pandemic ends or when this thing ends, because it seems like when we get close, you know, I used to look at the numbers every single day when I was tracking decisions I had to make, and I stopped, you know, after... June or so because I didn't need to. Well, I hopped back on today and took a look, and I was I was not I was not impressed um, with the number of counties that are turning red on the CDC map and the number of uh, new cases. And and my wife is uh, works at uh, VCU Health, and you know they're they're starting to see more kids now being coming in with COVID than we had before. And I think the vaccine right now isn't approved for children under 12. So there's there's some serious questions about what the fall is going to look like for a lot of people, especially if the numbers move a little bit. But let's just pray for the best and assume that we are, we do get ahead of the curve. You know, I think there's great opportunity here for us as educators to truly return to better. Um, I haven't used the word, and I'll, I'll say it on this call since it's, you know, but I haven't used the word normal at all. Uh, when we get back to normal, what I always say is when we get back to something that looks more familiar, um, because some of the things that were normal to us before are things that we ought not do. I mean, I think one of the pieces that is also being forgotten throughout all of this is right, you know, shortly after the pandemic hit the schools, we had the, the George Floyd killing and all that went with that. And so all of a sudden, not only were you dealing with pandemic, you were also suddenly dealing with a racial um, reconciliation and reckoning, for lack of a better word. And at a school like Maggie Walker, we came under fire pretty quickly. And when we start taking a look at some of our practices, well, you know what? Going back to normal is not going to work anymore. Uh, we did some online surveys with our kids, and, and we found out that we have children here that get a great education, but they never felt like they belonged. They never felt comfortable. They never felt that they were part of what, you know, and the, the irony of that of being in a building called Maggie Walker was not lost on me. So I think there's great opportunity since we've had kind of a clean break from the traditions and the way of doing things. Plus, we know we've had some staffing changes here. We've had some leadership changes here. There's opportunities to just, you know, if you're ever going to do something different, now it's time to do it. And I think there's an opportunity here for us to return to better. Um, and I've said, and I'm sure that, that Chris and Monica and most principals, man, the first day of school here, if it's, if it's what we're hoping it's going to be, and, and there's a bunch of buses and they're rolling out, it's going to be like the 4th of July and every major holiday rolled in. I mean, if I could get a permit from the city of Richmond, I'd set off fireworks. I mean, it is, it's got to be the biggest celebration. And I don't give two rips if they learn a darn thing on the first day of school, you know, just getting back into school for a couple of days. That's what we're looking for. You know, celebration of, of their return to something that looks familiar. I think that we can return to better. And I, I look forward to it. Well, to learn that you care and that you're there for them, but that sounds awesome. John, jump in. Yeah, I, I, and I would build on what you just said there, Brian, and, and um, 
we can return to better. I, th I also think we ought to um, think about returning to, to slightly different too. And you know, what I've heard over this last hour from three principals is a lot about relationships and mental health. And you know, we a lot of the rhetoric in popular media these media these days are on education is around learning loss. And yeah, we've got some academic issues to address, but you know, I think for for principals in particular. Um, coming back is going to be coming back a little bit differently, at least initially, you know, going to really have to take on that kind of servant leadership role and be the, the voice of, um, you know, empathy and support for a community that uh, has grieved in a lot of ways over the last year. And so it's making sure, just making sure everyone's okay, making sure teachers are okay, making sure students are okay, uh, helping them through that transition back to, you know, the ballroom full of people that, that Bob mentioned when their students are back in a hallway full of kids. Um, yeah, it's going to be a little bit traumatic. And so it becomes incumbent upon our leaders and our educators to, to, to think of themselves, at least initially, more like social workers and psychologists and therapists. And we'll, we'll get to the academic stuff, you know, but let's make sure that that transition is smooth and that everyone's okay so that, because they can't, they can't learn if they're not okay. Yeah, so so John, you lead us perfectly into our, our last question. I wonder if if you if you want to continue on that thought a little bit. But you know, in, in closing, I wanted to ask each of you uh, how you think we might enact our vision of school leadership in a new era, and if you had any advice for folks, uh, for yourself and for others as as you move into the fall. Um, so John, I, I, you said quite a bit there, but if there's anything else you'd like to add, feel free, and then we'll go around the horn. Yeah, I, I think that was um, you know, pretty much the, the message that I would have for, for school leaders is to um, you know, think about what your role is in the first weeks or month or so of schooling. Um, and I, I hope that our schools in general can, can recognize um, what became clear to everyone, which is kind of their their relationship to the larger community and their relationship to the economy. You know, when we think of schools and relationship to the economy, we're often thinking about schools as preparing workers for the workforce. But there's also this relationship and you know, with schools as providers of childcare. And I don't, I don't mean that in sort of an infantilizing kind of way. I mean, literally our economy relies on parents being able to send their kids somewhere for eight hours a day. And, and so I have a, a colleague and friend named Gary Steger who often he asked the question, you know, what if what if schools were the best six hours of every kid's day? You know, and, and could could we really think about that at least initially, you know, like let's um, bring some joy back in the life of kids and teachers and uh, and and come together as a community um, and and you know, maybe what Bob said he doesn't give two rips about what they learn on the first day. I might maybe extend that to a week, you know, like what if we had a welcome back week where everyone was just being human together again? That that would be pretty lovely if you ask me. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, let me go, Chris, then Bob, and, and Monica to close out. You know, when I think about, you know, how do we continue to enact our vision for school leadership? I, I think it goes back to just building that culture of positivity in your building, um, that, you know, of truly, you know, leveraging the, the people in your building, the, your community members, your parents, and, and connecting them together. Um, I, I, for so much, it's, it's, it's building the capacity of your people, um, whether that's through, you know, you know, observations, evaluations, you know, giving people feedback, um, but it's also, you know, modeling for them what you want from them when they're working with kids and working with others. I think, you know, being reflective and, and taking more time to listen to folks and, and then putting into play what you hear from them. And, and, and I think that's the piece where we get people back to being connected and, and seeing the importance of being school leaders. Because, you know, I'm a math teacher, you know, when I first started teaching. So, you know, I, I can tell you a lot about math, but what I can really like to think that I can tell you about is a lot about good instruction and good relationship building. And because of those are going to be the hallmarks of how we, you know, get our kids to be successful and, and align them with the things that they need to be successful. Um, but it, it goes back to, again, just, you know, modeling for everyone what we want from them and then aligning them with the resources that they need to be successful. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Bob. Yeah, I would say um, 
I mean, I think these are all these are all really good comments. One of the things that I'm, I look at my own situation is I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, there was a point sometime within the past 15, 16 months where where we we had kind of had enough, um, and you were just being human. You know, I would love to say principals and, and administrators, we try to put on these capes and, and shirts with, you know, big letters on the front, but we're human. And there were times where it was like, you know what, I'm, 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 I can't do this anymore. I'm getting beaten to death by the media. I'm getting beaten to death by parents who want their kids back in school. I got beaten to death by parents who don't want their kids back in school. And, you know, both sides of it. And I think it, you get to a point where it was just really frustrating. But that being said, one of the things that I did learn, you know, I learned it in that little brief period of time at the end of the last school year where we got to have some kids back on campus. I am going to never take for granted some of the little small interactions that just saying, saying hi to a kid when he comes off the bus, seeing a, you know, a girl in the library, hey, what you doing? Oh, that looks really cool. You know, just I'm not going to take that for granted again. I'm not. I mean, I'm committed to myself to just be a, a beacon of positivity and hope. Um, and I don't think it would have to be forced. I mean, I think a lot of times you know, we kind of think of it as, oh, you got to you know, always make sure that you're acting. I, I, I'm not going to have to work too hard at that if, if we get ourselves back into that situation where the kids are back. Because, you know, most of us, and I'm looking at who's on the call, and we probably had opportunities to, to take jobs that didn't involve working with kids as much, and, and, or with students, I should say, to, to broaden it out some. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest smiles, it's funny because I came home, and I'll, I'll just say this last story, but came home, and one of the things that came up during the, the pandemic was we had to deal with the PSAT. Well, shoot, how are we supposed to do that? The thing's not online. We had to bring the kids back to campus, and so we split them out. We came up with this great plan or whatever, and I ended up proctoring a PSAT test, which you've, if you've ever done is one of the most awful things on the planet to do. I mean, you're just sitting there, I mean, you know, stop, put your pencils down. What, you know, I mean, it's just, it's awful. And I came home and my wife's like, why are you in such a good mood? And I said, I got to see kids today. She's like, what were you doing? So I was proctoring a PSAT test and it was the best day of the month, you know, and I, and, and it was real. It was a genuine feeling. So, um, you know, I think I'm hoping that leaders certainly remember that. And, and we remember what it was like to have empty hallways uh, for so long. And we don't, we don't ever take for granted those interactions that we have with the kids and, and the teachers and the parents, just the whole, the whole school community that we just never take that for granted again. I am hopefully you can proctor PSATs every day next year. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Monica. It just reminds me of our why. And yeah. that is one of the things that we have been sitting with this summer. We pulled together some teachers this summer for the whole month of July to sit and understand our why. And mm -hmm. one of the things that was um, shocking or, or telling to me was the goal of the, the work that we were going to do this summer was around them spending time on that with their curriculum and kind of getting ahead, writing their lesson plans. And as we started doing the work, they just wanted to know, well, what's the lesson plan format going to be? How many times do you want it? When are we turning it in? The first two weeks, we just sat with the why. Why are we doing this work? And it was a little awkward for them. And I'm going to challenge them the first week of school to do the same thing with their students understand the why we do this work. And so like you said, Bob, if we could, the first day of school would be fireworks and cupcakes all day long. <laughs> but we are gonna take the first week, those first three days, getting to know students and making sure that everybody is comfortable and feels good about coming back in the building and really setting that tone. So staying in that why and, and being comfortable there is really going to help drive and set the tone for the school year. Yeah, well, so thank you guys so much. I wanna thank you for your words of positivity and of encouragement. And we're so excited about the work you all will be doing and helping facilitate as we move into the fall. But we are gonna to need to leave it there for now, but if you wanna continue this conversation, uh, those that are listening, we hope you'll join us for the 2021 Merck Conference on Friday, October 22nd on the HopIn.2 online platform. Tickets are available now and there are special rates for VCU and Merck school divisions. You can register on the website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash conference. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu slash conference. While you're there, you can check out Merck projects and reports on prominent issues in public education and sign up for our stakeholder email listserv to stay up to date with our latest research and resources. 
You can listen to other episodes from this series and subscribe to The Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the Merck website. Our thanks, as always, to the VC School of Education for supporting the work we do at Merck and to all the partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Thanks especially to John Becker, Monica Murray, Robert Lowry, and Chris Martinez for sharing the perspective today. And of course, thanks as always to you for joining our conversation. We hope you'll share this episode with anyone you think would find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium and the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.